Welcome to Living Free Today, a ministry of Cornerstone Fellowship in San Lorenzo, California. These podcasts are the weekly sermons of Dr. Michael L. Wilson. Please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is leaving Capernaum and going to a town called Nain. If you look at Bible maps, and some Bibles have maps at the back of their book, you will see that Nain is about 20 miles south of Capernaum, where Jesus had healed Peter's mother-in-law, had cast out the demon-possessed man in the synagogue, and healed the leper. And it says in 7.1, after he had finished all this, uh, finished all his sayings and hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And then if you go down to 11, it says, soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain. And so what this is showing us is a progression of events. Luke does not give us a time or a date, but he is saying that these are the order of things that Jesus had spent some time in Capernaum. And then it says soon afterwards, and soon afterwards can be a day, it can be a week, it is a way, an indeterminate amount of time. And so he goes to Nain, and where is Nain? Well, Nain is 20 miles south of Capernaum. It is six miles southeast of Nazareth. If Jesus were to continue through Nain, he would hit a town called Shunem. And Shunem is where Elisha raised a young boy from the dead. If he continued past Shunem, he would be in a town called Endor. And Endor is where Saul visited a medium. All this to say, this part of the world was well known to anybody who knew their Old Testament. A bit of Bible trivia. You take the farthest east, the farthest west, the farthest north, and the farthest south event that's in the Bible, and you cut it all out, it would all fit inside of Texas. The world of the Middle East, because you didn't have airplanes and you didn't have cars, was very small. And even though you had world domination by people like the Babylonians and the Persians, the world that they dominated was actually quite small compared to the whole globe. And so this area of traveling from this town to this town and this town that Jesus did These are towns that other things happened on in 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, in Joshua and Judges and Ruth and these stories where it talks about towns, these towns and areas still existed when Jesus walked the earth and so he visited these places. When it says... Uh, and his disciples, uh, let's see, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd with him. So a great number of people, and we do not know how great a great crowd is, probably a couple hundred. 
Okay, we're following Jesus. There's only a limited number of people that can drop everything and start following Jesus. And this was the group who was doing it from Capernaum. And they're traveling 20 miles. And so 20 miles is about a day's journey. When you have that many people, you may have some older people. You may have some uh, children, for example. So a crowd like that would move rather slowly across the desert landscape heading toward Nain. Nain is on top of a little hill, and so it took time to go up that hill. And it says, as he drew near to the gate of the town, Nain had a gate. Nain probably did not have a wall. If you go back before Jesus into like the book of Joshua, into the book of uh, Genesis and Exodus, you have villages all over the Middle East, villages that were started by families. If a particular man had a lot of kids and had a lot of grandkids and a lot of great-grandkids, and they were able to carve out a piece of land, they were able to fight their way against the people who owned the land, then you would have these villages popping up all over the place. And in the book of Joshua, they would come to a city, and they would come to a city, and it would say that it was unguarded or wide open. Those types of cities did not have walls around them. Other cities did have walls around them as they would grow, and as the people got kind of scared about what was out there, they might build a wall around it. When David took the city of Jerusalem... It had a very large wall around it, and so you had a variety of cities, and some of them were city-states that actually had a king, others were just large families, and the city of Nain had a gate, but it probably did not have a wall, and you may wonder, well, why do you have a gate if you don't have a wall? If you look through your Bible, in the Old Testament particularly, you see that every city had a gate, and every city had a gate because that was where the business of the city went. That was like the city hall. If decisions were going to be made, the elders gathered at the gate of the city, and you see that throughout the Old Testament. It doesn't mean that there was a wall. It just meant that there was a ceremonial place called a gate, events that happened in the gates of the city, uh, Abraham, when he wanted to buy a burial place for his wife, he went to the Hittites and he said, I want this cave at the end of this street to do this. And they haggle back and forth and eventually he buys it and it says that they went to the gate of the city, of the Hittite city, and the elders in his witness, he said, I'm going to buy this. And the elders go, we hear you say you're going to buy this. And that's how they witnessed uh, monetary events like that at the gate of the city. When Boaz, in the book of Ruth, he wants to marry Ruth. He wants to be the kinsman redeemer. He goes to the gate of the city in Bethlehem. They have a gate and he goes there and he tells his story and he negotiates with the other kinsman redeemer at the gate of the city in the hearing of everybody, and he ends up marrying Ruth. But the decision to do that 
was made at the gate of the city. If you read through Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is a book about all sorts of laws and things that you need to do and how you need to live. A bunch of them say, if you want to enforce this law, you have to go to the gate of the city, especially marriage laws and inheritance laws with children, things that involved land or money. You needed to have those decisions with a group of wise people, the elders of the city, at the gate of the city. And so a, a small town like Nain, and, and we've excavated Nain, and they think about 1,500 people lived in it at the time that Jesus was there. Even a small town like Nain, they would build a gate, even though they had nothing else around the city, so that at least they could obey the laws that God had set up. God's assumption is that if you build a city in the Middle East, you will build a meeting place for decisions, and we will call that the gate of the city. And so all that to say, Jesus comes near to the gate of the town. In a town like this, you probably had a gate of one, at one end and a main street going through the small town with little tributaries off of it. And so Jesus enters through the front door of the city, the gate of the city. And as he's going in, a funeral possession is coming out. Behold, this is behold, a man who had died was being carried out, his only son of his mother. And you think, man, isn't that fortuitous? Isn't that lucky that Jesus happened to be there when a funeral was going on so that he could raise the dead as he's going to do? But you don't look at things that God does and say, isn't God lucky? You don't think of anything like, isn't it fortuitous? Isn't, you know, these random events that we see in the world of, of this person saying that or this accident on the freeway which slows us down or this strange thing we get in the mail or these random things that we look at and we scratch our head and say, we don't know the cause of this. I couldn't plan for this because this is an accident, this is a random event, God doesn't have that problem. I would bet, and you can talk about this when you get to heaven, and you sit down with the people who were there, and you get a chance to talk with God about this. The idea that Jesus is in Capernaum, and knowing how the future is going to be, knowing what is going to happen tomorrow and the next day and the next day on into eternity as Jesus does, he was able to leave Capernaum at the exact moment, knowing how long this large group of people would take to travel 20 miles. He knew that exactly. He was able to, you know, look at his watch and say, time to leave, and they would leave as a group and then the perfect timing, God's perfect timing of going into the city while a funeral possession is going out. And when we look at that, if we really grab a hold of God's perfect timing in this situation and just try to apply that to your life of things that you're waiting for or things that you didn't want to happen or things that went well or didn't go well or made, you know, you were happy about or you're sad about, that all of these things 
are orchestrated in God's perfect timing that God is working in your life and my life and the life of everybody in the world and everybody that has ever lived in the world, God is involved and God's perfect timing is allowed. If we look at this, some people there who may have known Jesus, like the people who were the crowds after him, might have wondered that he was late. He could have healed the sick. He could heal this guy before he died. Just like Mary and Martha said with Lazarus, which is another resurrection miracle, if he had been there, they said, he would not have died. But that isn't God's plan always. It was, we can look at this, how this, per, how this person died, we don't know, but it was definitely God's plan that a, he would enter the city while a funeral possession, procession was going out. It was God's plan that this man was going to die and be prepared and be involved in a funeral. That was God's plan. And we can say, well, that's not good for the, the mother. I mean, it's, you know, it's Mother's Day, and here is a mother whose son had died. Her only son. And we can say, well, that's, you know, sad for her. But God can do things and God can make plans that if we have expectations that don't match that, we can be sad and confused and even hurt by what God is doing because we are trying to put our own expectations on Him as opposed to finding out what God is like and what God is doing and putting his expectations on our lives. People have said that if you want to make God laugh, then show him your plans. Is that we can make our lives into anything we want, but if God is going in a certain direction, as he is, he's going in a certain direction, he is heading toward the book of Revelation, if you want to know where God is going, then look at the book of Revelation and it will show you where God is going. God is heading there. And so the world needs to be somewhat chaotic. The world needs to be a place where the Antichrist can actually come to power. And if you look at the tribulation passages in the book of Revelation and say, Oh, it's going to be happy-go-lucky paradise, and then one, you know, next Monday the tribulation is going to start. Probably not. The world is going toward hell. That is what the world is doing. And so we need to focus on God and have God be our, our goal in all of this. And I think things will be better. And if we look at this and we say... He comes and a funeral is coming out and he's the only son of his mother. Now, what does that mean back 2,000 years ago? Back 2,000 years ago and back when God gave the law at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus and the remainder of the law in the book of Deuteronomy, there are a lot of inheritance laws and keeping your name, as it were, uh, in the forefront. And the way that it works is you have these 12 sons 
of Israel and these 12 sons, every Jewish person, came from one of these 12 sons, and that is known as the tribe that you are from if you are a Jewish person. And you would have a different name. You would be a son of of Dan, for example. You would be a great, 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 great grandson of Dan, but your name might be, you know, something else other than Dan. You'd be somebody, somebody of the tribe of Dan. And what would happen is the males would carry the name, would carry the tribal name through. And so you wanted to have lots of sons, because if you had lots of sons, you would be guaranteed to have at least one of them, if you had eight sons, for example, one of them, to live long enough to be married and have other sons and to have the name carried through. Now, when Joshua is, is claiming the land in the book of Joshua, when it's all over, near the end of the book of Joshua, he is handing out sections of the promised land to each of the 12 tribes. Everybody but the Levites get a section of land. And that land was going to be permanently and perpetually that tribe's land. And there was a plan in the Old Testament that if you were just bankrupt and you just had to sell a piece of your land, you were first supposed to sell it within your tribe, people who were after your own interest, who could help you. If not, and you had to sell it to another tribe, every 50 years at the year of Jubilee, you get your land back. Your family gets the land back. Okay? And the land is held by the name, and the name is carried by the males. Okay? Whether you think that's great or wonderful, that women didn't have that back then, eh, it's the way it was, and so we look at how it was, not how we would like it to be. And so this is a widow. So her husband, who had the name, has died. Okay? She is all alone at this level of her family. She has one son, one son, and she's betting everything on this one son to get a wife and have 30 kids, okay, to carry on the name. And then this son goes and dies. What does this mean for the widow? The widow, having no standing in the Jewish tradition in the time of Jesus, all of her land will go toward any brothers that existed from her husband. Her husband hopefully had brothers. They will take her and her land... Uh, away from their standing and add them to their standing. And so it's a way of saving the land in a family name, but the widow no longer has standing. The brother does, the uncle of the dead person. Hopefully there were brothers. If there were no brothers, then you would have to go to cousins and somebody else who was of that tribe, would take care of this widow and absorb all of her land into their holdings. So this widow would become, would disappear 
into the lineage of the Jewish people. She would no longer be noticed, no longer be a matriarch, no longer uh, have people come to her house for Thanksgiving dinner or whatever. She would disappear into a larger family group. And so this is sad. We look at this and we say, well, she's going to lose everything, whatever houses she had, whatever land she had that she inherited through her husband will be gone. And so Jesus sees this and it says he had compassion. Now the word compassion is the same word that we would use to mean brokenhearted. Jesus saw the situation and his heart was broken over it, over the suffering of this woman, over the insignificance of this woman that she was going to have. She was no longer going to have grandkids and great-grandkids around her to take care of her. She was going to disappear in the bureaucracy of the Jewish life. And so Jesus sees this and has compassion. Now it says that he touched the bear. And you say, what's a bear? I don't, we don't know what that word means. It means it's a pallet. The way that you were handled, let's say that you passed away in you know, Jesus and before, all the way back to Moses. The way that it would work is they would take your body and they would anoint it with spices and things to make it smell good and they would wrap it tightly in cloth strips and they would make you look like a mummy. You wouldn't be embalmed, but you would look like a mummy. And then you were placed on a pallet, on a board, and a bunch of people would lift this up and on their shoulders, the pallbearers, would carry you outside the city with your body on top of a pallet, on top of a board. They would find a tomb or a cave and they would put you in that tomb or cave and they would mark the date and they would seal it up and they would wait one year. At the end of the year, they would go in and your body would have decomposed because, and the cloth strips would mostly decompose and all that would be left would be the bones. And so they would collect the bones and put them in a bone box, what they would call an ossuary. And then this bone box would be taken and stacked with other bone boxes. And that is how the perpetual keeping of the memory was for Jewish people back then. And so this person was being carried to a tomb. Now, if you recall, Jesus was wrapped tightly in strips of cloth. Uh, Mary was going to go and put the spices in the next day because there wasn't any time on Friday because you had the Sabbath and all that. You couldn't touch dead bodies. And so when they got there, Jesus, not decomposing, had raised from the dead before any of this happens. And so when Lazarus was raised from the dead, what did he come out of the tune like? He was wrapped up in cloth. He was wrapped up tightly in cloth, and Jesus says, unwrap him. And so this is where this guy is going. He is going to a cave to go for a year, and then they would reuse the tomb, as it were. And so Jesus stops them, 
and tells them, do not weep, and they do stop, and you, you have the authority of Jesus here. You have Jesus, his reputation may have followed, but he has this large group of cheerleaders that are going with him, so they understand that something important is going on here. So he tells them to stop. It does say a large crowd was with him in a town like this. You had everybody's related to anybody anyway, you know, all the way out to cousins. And so you probably had the better part of 1,500 people in this big uh, funeral procession. This man died before he got married, he was probably younger, maybe 12 or 14, something like that, people are estimating. And so it is a major blow of sadness for this town that one of their own has died before he could get married and have kids. And so the whole town is in this wedding procession and then Jesus comes with his big crowd and he tells them to stop at the gate and they do stop. And he touches the pallet. Now, in the book of Deuteronomy, it says if you touch a pallet, you're unclean for seven days. You cannot participate in temple or synagogue worship because you've touched the, the part of a dead person's funeral possession. Jesus doesn't have that problem. Jesus can touch this guy and he doesn't get unclean. Jesus does not get unclean. Jesus is perpetually clean and holy and righteous. And so he stops them and he says, Young man, I say to you, arise. Now throughout this passage, Luke calls this person the dead man. Even in 15, he says, and the dead man sat up. Luke will call this person a dead man throughout. Jesus is the only one who calls him a young man. Okay, your death, somebody's death is inconsequential to God. He can raise you up in this life and he definitely will raise you up in the next life. We are not dead in God's view when we pass away. It is only a change of location, as I've said, when we close our eyes and open them up in heaven. And so the dead man sat up and began to speak. The speaking is a sign of life. Dead people do not speak, and so this person is clearly alive. Uh, it doesn't say it here, but they had to unwrap him because I'm sure he was muffled. He tried to speak, but he had cloth all around his head. So they unwrap him, and then Jesus gives him back to the mother. However that was, he probably presents the live son to the mother, and the mother, of course, is overjoyed because all this sadness that was moments ago is now happiness and joy, but it says in 16, fear sees them all. If you saw somebody that you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt was dead, and Jesus says, get up, and they do, that's a, that, wow, that's going to be scary because the power of God is not something that we tend to be happy about when we are exposed to the holiness and the power of God. On our side, we see our sin. We don't see how great God is 
compared to us, we see how bad we are compared to God. And so that's why throughout Scripture, when great things happen, the people are feared. They're feared of God's power, of God's power against my sin. When, I, when people are exposed to an angel or something like that, they fall down. They fall down because of their great sin, and the angels will always say, fear not, because the angels are there to bring great tidings of good joy, as we say during Christmas. And then they said, a great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. These are the same phrases that were used for people like Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and the great prophets of the Old Testament when they would come and they would do miraculous things to show the power of God. Back then they would say, God has visited his people. So this is a, a, a known phrase that they would uh, have read many times and they're now seeing in their lifetime. You know, it's been... It's been 400 years. Malachi ended, and then 400 years later, John the Baptist is born. And for 400 years, God was silent. There was no prophet in the intertestamental period. That's what the theologians call it. There was no prophet. There was no praying and have an answer. There was no dreams. There was no visions. There was zilch. There was zero. God was silent for 400 years. And then, boom, Elizabeth and Zechariah and John the Baptist and the whole thing starts in the book of Matthew. And so these people, having not seen a prophet, having not seen a miracle perhaps in the small town of Nain, they are amazed, they're blown away, and they're praising God, it says. And this uh, report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all surrounding country. Their communication was slow, but I'm sure they were sending messages and letters and the people were leaving Nain and going to the outer parts of the world and this person would tell that person, would tell that person, would tell that person, and the fame of Jesus, the glory of Jesus and what he was doing in the way of miracles spread throughout Judea, throughout the whole Jordan Valley. If you look at a Bible map, you have this long, skinny valley with the Jordan River running right down the middle of it. That's called the Jordan Valley. Your Nazareth, your Capernaum. Your uh, Galilee, where Jesus spent a lot of his ministries, were in the north part. In the south part, you had Jerusalem, you had the Dead Sea, you had uh, the tribe of Judah was the one that God left behind when he split up the 12 tribes. And so that's kind of seen as the southern part and is saying that the whole range of this Jordan Valley uh, has, has heard it. People are now understood Jesus, had heard about Jesus, had heard rumors about Jesus. And then like today, most likely, you had people who had wrong ideas about Jesus, but you had a lot of people, because they witnessed these miracles, had right ideas about Jesus. And a lot of them 
got saved, when you get to heaven, you can put out the call for any Nainites that happen to be there, people from the town of Nain, and you can talk to them about this miracle, about what they saw and what they, you know, how it was and what they felt about it. I mean, the, the discussions that we can have in heaven from all these biblical characters and biblical places is going to be phenomenal to just talk about how great God is and how great Jesus is for, for all of eternity. And so, what do we get from this? Up to this point, Jesus has turned water into wine. He has cast out demons. He has healed leprosy. He healed two young people from a distance. And now he's raised somebody from the dead. And nobody in the town of Nain is going to think that this young boy swooned or passed out or fainted. He was dead, dead, dead. And Jesus raised him from the dead and gave him back to his mother. Jesus is showing that he can do anything he puts his mind to. Anything Jesus wants to do, he's going to do. And nobody in the world can stop him. And the point of Jesus' coming was not to raise people from the dead and heal them. The point was to save you and I from our sins. And we look at this and we say, Jesus is unstoppable and I need to apply that to my salvation. Is that God, Jesus has said, I am going to save you. And I believe with all my heart that that is a true thing and that Jesus is unstoppable. And with the power of this resurrection, with the power of the resurrection of Lazarus and with the power of Christ's own resurrection, we have the power of salvation. And when Jesus says, you're saved, nobody, nobody, nobody can tell him that he can't do it and can tell you that you're not. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, we just praise your name, that you are powerful beyond measure, and that in this power we just praise you, and we know that it is that power that saves us, and that is our assurance, and that is our strength of belief to know that if you can raise somebody from the dead... You can raise me to new life. Lord, we praise you for that and ask your blessing on the remainder of the day. We ask all this through the blood of Christ. Amen. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 180 Llewellyn Boulevard, San Lorenzo, California. Our Sunday morning service is at 1045 a.m. Our website is livingfreetoday.org and our phone number is 510-278-2622. May God continue to bless you as you serve your King. God bless.